Our scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Hebrews, the fourth chapter, verses 12 to 13. Um, now, before we get started, I want to remind you that, um, that we've begun a series together in the last couple of weeks uh, talking about the book of Hebrews. And the first week we talked about um, this, this distance that we feel from God. Um, the sense that we feel from God throughout our lives that, that He seems to be drifting away. And last week we talked about how that distance is caused by sin, but also how um, God has put a sense of restlessness in us, uh, a sense of searching and longing uh, that helps us, um, uh, helps us overcome that distance. And so, um, as we talk these next couple weeks about searching, about searching for God, about trying to overcome that distance, we're going to um, highlight a few of the places that we can begin our search. And so, this morning we're going to talk about um, beginning our search um, in Scripture, God's Holy Word. And so, um, this short little passage we're going to read from Hebrews, the fourth chapter, verses 12 through 13, um, is a sort of a, a description of the Word of God. And so, um, Hebrews, the fourth chapter, verses 12 through 13. Hear now the Word of our Lord. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives this morning. By the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. I was realizing the other day that this year officially makes a decade that the Nettleton family has lived in Virginia. We moved to Radford, Virginia in 2011. Now at heart, Crystal and I will always be Kentuckians, but our kids are Virginians. I realized that this year when William was taking Virginia studies in school. See, he'd asked me all these questions about Virginia, and I wouldn't have a clue. When I was in school, I learned Kentucky stuff. I learned about Daniel Boone and Henry Clay and Colonel Sanders. I don't know anything about Virginia people. I thought Christopher Newport invented the cigarettes. Now, my kids have been to all the Virginia landmarks on field trips. I've never been to Jamestown or Williamsburg or Appomattox Courthouse. I did go to Monticello once. My parents took me to Monticello on a vacation. Now, it was neat to see where Thomas Jefferson lived. I remember being really struck by the office where he had all these strange gadgets. It was there at Monticello that I learned about the Jefferson Bible. I wonder if they teach that in Virginia studies. The Jefferson Bible was Thomas Jefferson's attempt at editing scripture to conform to his Enlightenment ideas. See, 
Thomas Jefferson considered himself a Christian in the sense that he believed in all the ethical teachings of Jesus. He believed the world would be better off if everyone lived by Jesus' teachings. But he didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead or performed miracles. Jefferson thought that Jesus was a really great teacher, a great moral philosopher. But he thought that everything else that was said about Jesus was just superstitious nonsense created by the church to control the masses. So, Jefferson sought to create a Bible that would be free of the church's corrupting influence, free of what he deemed to be dark ages thinking, unfit for the new age of enlightenment. His Bible would be rational and scientific. Thomas Jefferson literally spent evenings cutting and pasting the Bible. He would sit his, at his desk with a Bible on his right and a blank book on his left. And he would take a razor blade and cut out the passages that he deemed appropriate. He would paste those passages in the new book. Jefferson's Bible didn't contain the Old Testament. He considered all of those writings to be ancient Hebrew myths. He didn't include the letters of Paul, which he thought to be a corruption of the true philosophy of Jesus. Jefferson's Bible only contained the four Gospels, and even then, only those passages that contained no supernatural events or divine claims, just stories of Jesus behaving kindly and giving sound instruction. Jefferson's Bible began with Jesus' birth, minus the angels and prophecies and ended with him being placed in a tomb sealed by a great big stone. The Jefferson Bible was a labor of love. The third president stood over the Bible like a surgeon, cutting carefully with the tiny knife, extracting from the Bible those passages which conformed to his naturalistic philosophy. He referred to this task as removing diamonds from a dunghill. In the end, this thin little book we call the Jefferson Bible contained only those things with which Thomas Jefferson agreed. It was 46 pages in all. He reported in one of his letters to John Adams that he read his version of the Bible every night and drew great inspiration and comfort from it. Can't you picture Thomas Jefferson at Monticello on a summer evening? sitting on a rocking chair, smoking a pipe, and reading from his little Bible. A Bible that doesn't make any embarrassing supernatural claims or any challenges to his morality. No, he can sit on his porch and rock back and forth and be comforted and soothed by a Bible that contains no Hebrews groaning under the weight of slavery like the black men picking tobacco out in his field. A Bible that contained no words against sexual immorality, like the kind that would have prevented the swollen belly of the female slave in his house. A Bible that never once hinted that there would be a time when Jefferson would be held accountable for his actions. No, each night Jefferson would read a Bible that told him he was right and allow him to sleep with a clear mind. I've always found this image of a man sitting at his desk, taking a knife to scripture to be a haunting one. 
What would possess someone to think that they can improve on 3,000 years worth of wisdom in their free time? Who would presume themselves to be the arbiter of what's important and what's not? Who would dare put the Bible under the knife? If we're honest, all of us, at one time or another. And I mean all of us, not just those other Christians. See, it's easy to see how the Christian in the other camp chooses some scripture to paste in their books and leaves the rest on the cutting room floor. Right? If you're conservative, you can lament how progressives always seem to leave out the verses from the Bible that call God's people to certain standards of holiness. And if you're progressive, you can lament how conservatives always seem to leave out those verses about helping the poor and the foreigner. It's just easier to see a speck in our brother's eye than a plank in our own, isn't it? But the truth is, we all have a tendency to keep those things we agree with and take a knife to the rest. We may not do so as flagrantly as Jefferson did. Make no mistake, we all pick and choose the scriptures we agree with and discard the rest. We slap on bumper stickers those verses which challenge the lifestyle of others, but we always seem to wiggle out of those verses that challenge our own lives. We say, Jesus didn't really mean that. You have to understand the context if you go back to the Greek. Don't believe me? Answer this question honestly. When was the last time the Bible changed your mind about anything? When was the last time you opened the pages of the Bible and had your worldview radically challenged? When was the last time you left God's Word transformed by the renewing of your mind? The answer for most of us is never or once in college. But most of the time, we exit the scripture the same way we entered. If we encounter anything challenging, we find a workaround. If the preacher points out anything in scripture we don't like, we say, well, well, he's a liberal or a conservative or something. We tower over scripture with a blade deciding what's important and what's not, so that it becomes our word and not God's. And we do this without even realizing it. Our passage this morning flips the script on us, doesn't it? Let's read it again. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now reading that passage, it's clear that for the author of Hebrews, it is not we who stand over the word of God wielding the blade. Rather, the word of God stands over us. The last verse says, Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of the one to whom we must give account. Uncovered and laid bare is sacrificial imagery. Think of a lamb upon a stone altar. It's been bound up to keep it from escaping. 
but before the sacrifice it must be untied. Its neck is laid bare and the knife comes down. According to the author of Hebrews, that is our relationship to the Word of God. The Word of God is a blade that separates joint and marrow the way a priest would when making a sacrifice. And all butchers were priests in the ancient world. We are the ones lying helpless beneath the blade. It's an unsettling image, isn't it? We don't wield the blade over Scripture. Scripture wields the blade over us. This is exactly what we mean when we say that Scripture has authority. Those of us in the Protestant tradition profess to believe in the authority of Scripture. When we say that, we, don't, we mean that we don't place ourselves above God's Word, but that we recognize that we are the ones on the receiving end of the blade. To be on the other side of the blade means that rather than being the one who decides what is good and right in Scripture, we allow Scripture to decide what is good and right within us. We realize that God's Word is meant to make us into who we are called to be, and so we submit willingly to its authority, no matter how painful that might be. Before the Protestant Reformation, regular people couldn't read Scripture for themselves. It was illegal to translate scripture into the common tongue. There was only priests and bishops and monks who could read and interpret scripture. The rest of us had to take their word for it. The story is told of a man named Thomas Lincray who decided to become a priest. Now, he did so during the papacy of Alexander VI, who is today regarded as one of the most corrupt popes in history. He took bribes, put his children in high positions, threw debauched parties in the Vatican, and committed incest and murder. When Thomas Lincray received his holy orders, he was given a copy of the Gospels to read for the first time. After reading them for himself, he was stunned. He said, either these are not the Gospels, or we are not Christians. See, when we place ourselves over the scriptures, like the medieval popes, and when we make ourselves the arbiter of what they mean, then we choose to emphasize those scriptures we happen to agree with, we can justify anything. But when we submit ourselves to the authority of scripture, let scripture put us on the operating table, we are the ones who have to change in response to God's word. The Gospels are, in fact, the Gospels. And we must decide if we are truly Christians. If we are, then God's Word stands above us. The Bible must have authority in our lives. Now, I suppose that's an easy enough thing for us to say, right? We believe in the authority of Scripture. But what does that mean? What does it mean to say this strange collection of writings has authority over us? In the case of laws, that's easy enough, right? The Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt not murder. That means, don't kill people. To say the Bible has authority means that we accept that this law is binding on us and we don't kill people. But, we're acting as if the Bible is essentially a rule book. It isn't. 
the overwhelming majority of the Bible is something other than thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that. What about the poetry we find in the book of Psalms? What does it mean to say that poetry has authority? How do we place ourselves beneath the Lord is my shepherd? Or the books of prophecy. Isaiah's prophecies contain God's warning to a king who lived a thousand years ago uh, about what would happen if he collaborated with a country that doesn't exist anymore. What does it mean to say that has authority today? The overwhelming majority of scripture is narrative. What does it mean to say a story has authority in our lives? How do we submit to David killing Goliath or Daniel in the lion's den? How do we humble ourselves before Jonah and the whale? What does it mean to say the word of God has authority? What does it mean that it stands over us? If it's not a rule book, what is it? Let's read that first verse one more time. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. For the word of God is alive and active. What does that mean? How can a book be alive and active? For that matter, how can a book judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart? Not only is the Word of God more than a book of rules, it's more than a book, period. See, the word used for word in this passage is this Greek word, logos. Now, logos is a word that is loaded with meaning. For the Greeks, it meant something like the divine ordering principle of the entire universe, the reason for everything. For the Hebrews, it meant the divine word through which God speaks things into being. For Christians, the Logos means Jesus Christ. Remember the first chapter of John? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, for the author of Hebrews, the Word of God isn't just a book of rules. It's a person. Jesus Christ. To recognize the authority of Scripture is not to approach it as simply a divine rule book, but to recognize it as the place where we can encounter Jesus Christ, our divine ruler. The Bible's authority comes from the person of Jesus Christ, the Word of God made flesh, who is ultimate authority in our lives. A famous rabbi named Eliezer told his disciples that if a person truly wants to understand Scripture, they must learn to inhabit a single word. Now, one of the disciples spoke up and asked, Teacher, how is it possible 
Surely we can't shrink and make ourselves tiny enough to fit into a single word. Then the rabbi replied, I was not speaking of people who consider themselves bigger than words. In order to encounter Jesus and the pages of scripture, we must learn to submit to it with the same humility. To realize that we are not greater than the words of scripture. We don't tower over them. They tower over us. When John Wesley talked about reading the Bible, he didn't use the phrase Bible study. Bible study suggests sitting over the Bible the way a student might sit over a dissected frog. John Wesley used the phrase, searching the scriptures. I like that. It reminds me that whenever I read the Bible, I'm supposed to be looking for something, rather, someone. I often think of the Bible like I think of a temple, a beautiful building built with human hands, but by God's design. The temple is a holy place, but why is it holy? Is it holy because of its perfect marble columns or its elegant curtains? No. It's holy because when we enter into it, the deeper and further we go, the closer we draw to the Holy of Holies, that special place where God dwells. The temple is holy because it's the place where the Holy God can be encountered. The Bible is God's holy word because it is the place where we can stand in the holy presence of the true word. Jesus Christ. What if we saw the Bible not as a book of rules, but as a place of meeting? What if its pages became for us the curtain behind which he resides? What if its words became the words to which he speaks directly to us? What if we humbled ourselves to encounter Jesus and submit to his authority? See, I believe that the reason we rarely ever leave the Bible with a changed heart or a changed mind is because we stop expecting to encounter Jesus in its pages. What difference would it make to wake up in the morning looking to the pages of the Bible for fresh springs of living water? What if we prayed before we began to read, Speak to me, Jesus. Show yourself to me. Every Sunday, after I read the scripture aloud and before I preach, I say a little prayer or a blessing. Frankly, I'm not sure what it is. But I say, this is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives today by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. In some churches, the pastor says, the word of God for the people of God, and the congregation responds, thanks be to God. I've heard other versions too. I have a simple reason for saying the one I say. See, my dad's a pastor, and what I heard him say uh, when he got to that part of the service. So it just feels natural. This is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives today by the power of His Holy Spirit. Amen.
it's a description of what I hope will happen here. That somehow through what is read and said, God's living and active word will find its way into your hearts and lives. That you will leave this place changed, having encountered Jesus Christ in the words of Scripture. That you will allow it to do its work on you. It's my prayer that the same process will continue at home. That the Word of God would keep working on you as you search the Scriptures throughout the week looking for Jesus. Look, I don't know much about Virginia studies. But I've dedicated my life to biblical studies. I love this book. It's a word into my feet and a light under my path. Not just because it's a book of rules, some of which a decent human being would know anyway. No, not just because it's an endlessly fascinating library of wisdom literature and prophecies and some of the greatest stories ever told. I love this book because it's the place where I can encounter my risen Lord and hear His voice. I love this book because it's the Word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives today by the power of His Holy Spirit. Amen.